It's 6 a.m., October 30th, 2018. 89-year-old Whitey Bolger is sitting in his wheelchair in his prison cell. The door had just been unlocked for breakfast. Three men are headed his way, and he won't live to tell his side of the story. Fotis Freddy Gias, a known mafia enforcer from Massachusetts, serving a life sentence for a pair of gang-related murders. Paul DiColagero, a member of a Massachusetts gang, which murdered a teenage girl who they thought knew too much. He had four years left on a 25-year sentence for his involvement in that. And Sean McKinnon, a low-level crook taking along. How did poor elderly piss-pants Whitey get to this point? In order to answer that, we'll have to take a journey through a man's life that goes way beyond just being a mobster. A man who was a prisoner in Alcatraz. A man who was experimented on as part of the CIA's MK Ultra program. More on that a little later. A man who was once considered to be the second most wanted individual on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list, behind only the OG himself, Osama bin Laden. But we've got to go back just a little bit first. I'd like to give a quick thanks to all of our lovely Patreon supporters who contribute each month to help support the production costs of this podcast. Thank you very much for helping to keep the cogs of Homicide Inc. turning. It's a huge help. And an extra special thanks to our Yakuza members for your extra contributions and enjoy an additional two Homicide Inc. podcasts each month. Thanks, guys. And I'd like to invite you all to help raise awareness of this podcast by rating and reviewing it. Go ahead and click the five stars and leave a review if you'd like. Thanks so much. All right, let's get back into the story. James Joseph Bolger, no whitey yet, was born on September 3rd, 1929 in Boston to working-class Irish immigrants. Bolger's father was a union laborer, occasionally working as a longshoreman. At some point, he lost his arm in an industrial accident. The family was reduced to poverty. In May 1938, the Mary Ellen McCormick Housing Project opened in South Boston. The impoverished Bolger family soon moved there, and that's where Whitey was born. From early on, the brothers' paths started to diverge. William Bolger excelled at school, while James was already slowly getting drawn into street life. His first arrest came at age 13, juvenile delinquency. It started with shoplifting, stealing from the back of trucks making deliveries. Soon enough, apparently it became a favorite activity of his to lure homosexuals who would then be robbed and beaten. It was around that time that he earned the name Whitey in reference to his white blonde hair, a nickname that he actually hated, preferred to go by Jim, though apparently he was also willing to settle for boots because it referenced Bolger's penchant for pulling a switchblade out of his cowboy boots. But he's not known as Boots Bolger. It was also around this time that he met an eight-year-old boy named John Connolly. Already 19 himself, he would buy him ice cream and later save him as he was being beaten up by an older boy. Go fight someone your own size, he said, as young Connolly stared in awe. A chance meeting that would alter the course of both of their lives. 
1956, he was convicted for a string of bank robberies, committed in three states, and sentenced to 20 years in prison. While imprisoned, Bulger volunteered to take part in experiments in return for a reduced sentence. There, he was unwittingly used as a human subject in the CIA-sponsored MKUltra program and was injected with the hallucinatory drug LSD, among others. Project MKUltra, or MKUltra, was an illegal human experimentation program designed and undertaken by the U.S. CIA with the intention to develop procedures and identify drugs that could be used in interrogations to weaken individuals and force confessions through brainwashing and psychological torture. I'm not making this up. It started in 1953 and ran for 20 years until it was halted in 73. MKUltra used numerous methods to manipulate its subjects' mental states and brain functions, such as the covert administration of high doses of psychoactive drugs, especially LSD, and other chemicals, electroshocks, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, and verbal and sexual abuse, in addition to other forms of torture. Whew. Bolger was already a dangerous criminal before his Atlanta prison sentence, but some say that the psychological effect of the MKUltra tests made his temperament even worse, shaping who he would become to an extent. You reckon? I think we can imagine this could be the case. That is one brutal program. And he volunteered for it. Bolger described his experience in the MKUltra program as nightmarish and taking him to the depths of insanity. In fact, he apparently never revealed the full extent of his experience because he was concerned that he would be committed to a mental institution for the rest of his life. In 1959, Bolger was briefly transferred to maximum security at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, and after a few other stops, he was granted parole in 65. This would be the last time he would be in the pokey for the next 46 years. When Bolger returned to Boston, he would find that his stint at Alcatraz had boosted his reputation significantly. In the early 1970s, Bolger would become an enforcer for the Winter Hill Gang, a predominantly Irish-American crime syndicate. In 1975, Bolger agreed to work with the FBI as a so-called top echelon informant. His handler would turn out to be none other than John Connolly, that childhood friend who he saved from an ass-whooping and their relationship would soon turn corrupt, later described as a devil's deal, and giving rise to the worst informant scandal in FBI history. Bolger would supply the FBI with information on the Italian mafia if the feds would guarantee him their protection. If one were to ask Bolger, however, he was never an informant. His entire life he maintained that he never cracked. Never. He couldn't deny that the meetings with Connolly had taken place, but what he would do is claim that he was the one handling Connolly, that he was using the FBI and their resources to his advantage, not the other way around. I was the guy who did the directing. They didn't direct me. In 1979, both the boss and deputy of the Winter Hill Gang were arrested for fixing horse races. 
and Bolger took over the gang's leadership, only escaping conviction himself due to the special protection provided by Connolly. Throughout his reign, Bolger would take full advantage of this relationship. Connolly frequently alerted Bolger to other authorities' investigations into the Winter Hill Gang's operations and would cast a blind eye even to murders committed, becoming an invaluable asset. By 1994, however, the hammer was finally about to come down. A case had been built against Bolger through a joint task force of the DEA, the Boston Police, and the Massachusetts State Police. The FBI by this time considered compromised was not informed, and arrests were imminent. Bolger reportedly called John Morris, Connolly's supervisor, and told him, If I'm going to jail, you're going to jail. I'm taking you with me. Shortly after, Morris suffered a heart attack. So terrifying was Whitey Bolger, so unnatural his reach, that he almost killed an FBI agent via a phone call. In December 1994, Connolly did one last favor for his childhood friend and warned him of the coming indictment. Bolger fled Boston, while all of his high-level associates in the gang were arrested. And that's when a 16-year manhunt for an increasingly legendary Whitey Bolger began. The first confirmed sighting of Bolger was in London in 2002 by a businessman who only realized who it had been later on while watching the movie Hannibal during a scene in which a detective hunting for Hannibal Lecter scans the FBI's most wanted list on the internet and flips past Bolger's image. Many unconfirmed sightings were also reported. Two people on video footage shot in Sicily in April 2007, thought to be Bolger and girlfriend Catherine Gregg, were later identified as a tourist couple from Germany. At one point, FBI agents were sent to Uruguay to investigate a lead. In 2010, based on Bolger being a known book lover, the FBI scoured bookstores on Vancouver Island, questioning employees and distributing wanted posters. They also sent agents to stake out 60th anniversary celebrations of the Battle of Normandy, due to Bolger reportedly being an enthusiastic fan of military history. Digital age progression was also utilized in order to generate an image of what Bolger might have looked like in 2004. Meanwhile, all this time, Bolger was living with Catherine Gregg as Charlie and Carol Gasco in a seaside apartment in Santa Monica, California, right under their noses. And beyond the fake identities, Bolger didn't really even make too much of an effort to stay hidden. There had been multiple sightings of him at the Santa Monica Pier, where he apparently enjoyed hanging out. One man says he recognized Bolger in 2008 and contacted the television show America's Most Wanted. Another witness says that he was on vacation with his family during spring of that same year when he saw Bolger shirtless and reading a book. He also claimed to have called America's Most Wanted, which had just broadcast a show on the notorious crime boss. But that's not anywhere near the most galling example, as it was during this time that Bolger would go back to Alcatraz. Not as a prisoner this time, though. Just weeks after he fled Boston, Bolger visited Alcatraz with his then-girlfriend, Teresa Stanley, 
And there's even a photo to prove it. Bolger and Stanley posing outside The Rock for a souvenir snap in mock prison uniforms, both stenciled property of Alcatraz. And as if it couldn't get worse and more humiliating for the FBI, this was just part of an album of holiday snaps, all the time while on the run, showing the pair visiting Britain's Tower of London, dining in Paris, and posing with the Stanley Cup. They were generally polite, according to one neighbor, who also said that they were kind of secretive. Even on the phone, you couldn't call them. Another neighbor also described them as a polite and quiet couple who sometimes helped carry her groceries. In letters written after his capture, Bolger described that time as a 16-year honeymoon. So, how was he actually finally caught? After all the millions spent, the nearly two-decade-long manhunt for him across the globe, all the technology and resources utilized, he was caught, are you sitting, by a former Miss Iceland. Beautiful. Anna Bjorn's daughter had lived next door to Bolger and Greg, or, as she knew them, Charlie and Carol Gasco. She recognized her former neighbors in a 30-second FBI television ad aimed at women watching daytime television, which showed photographs of Greg and Bolger from the 1990s. So she picked up the phone and turned in the second most wanted man in the world. She collected a $2 million tipster's fee for that phone call. According to a special agent in the Boston FBI office, the fact that the ad featured Greg as well, instead of just focusing on Bolger, was very much part of a targeted effort of them trying to reach a different audience to produce new leads in the case. They believed that locating Greg would lead them to Bolger. And that's exactly what happened. Though there's different accounts of the actual arrest, one claims that when the officers burst in, Bolger just rolled his eyes and said, I ain't getting down on my fucking knees. On June 12, 2013, Bolger went on trial on 32 counts of racketeering and firearms possession, including allegations that Bolger was complicit in 19 murders. Two months later, on August 12th, the jury convicted Bolger of 31 out of 32 counts in the indictment and found him culpable in 11 killings. On November 14th, Bolger was sentenced to two life terms of life imprisonment, plus five years. Pocket change. The USP Coleman II Penitentiary in Central Florida has long been known as a safe haven for marked men in the federal prison system, a.k.a. prisoners guilty of any of a particular assortment of crimes and activities that are considered anathema even by other criminals, so much so that anyone that enters a prison being guilty of one of these crimes or activities has a target on their back, such as government informants, snitches. A GED teacher at Coleman II was quoted as saying, we have a lot of snitches there, but they're safe. Like that old saying, they're among thieves. So, naturally, that's where Bolger was put and kept. That is, until October 2018. All of a sudden, Bolger started getting transferred left and right and center, going through multiple facilities in that month alone. On the 29th, 
he was transferred from the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City to United States Penitentiary Hazleton in West Virginia, long known as one of the most violent destinations for prisoners. Nothing more needs to be said other than the fact that it was nicknamed Misery Mountain. Even at Coleman, the warden was very clear about not taking any chances. He said he kept Bolger away from the general population for six months and talked to the most influential inmates to make sure they wouldn't make a move on him. I mean, he's an old guy, but gangsters don't forget. And here he was just dropped right into the general population. And he lasted 12 hours. It's 6.06 a.m., October 30th, 2018. Freddie Gius, Paul DeColagero, and Sean McKinnon have reached Bolger's prison cell. Gius and DeColagero enter. McKinnon doesn't enter the cell. He's on lookout, seated at a table where he can see both the unit's officer station and into Bolger's cell. They were in there for about seven minutes. Bolger was savagely beaten to death with a sock-wrapped padlock, and the two assailants were also armed with a shiv. His eyes were nearly gouged out, and his tongue almost completely severed. Afterwards, Bolger was described by a law enforcement official as unrecognizable. Literally, not one person was surprised by this development. There was no reason for anyone to think that what happened to Bolger wasn't going to happen. So that obviously begs the question, why? Why was Bolger transferred out of a facility famously known for its safety when it comes to marked prisoners in order to be transferred into a facility famously known for its homicides, Bolger's being the third in a 40-day span, and, according to correctional officers that had warned Congress just days before the most recent killing, dangerously understaffed? At first glance, two possible explanations jump out incompetence, or design. Let's start with the official reason given for his transfer. The explanation provided was medical in nature. Bolger's health had apparently improved to such a point as to allow for his relocation, according to prison files obtained by NBC News. Prison officials specified on his transfer paperwork that he completed treatment at a medical facility and was in good enough health to return to the general population. But there are three main issues with that. First of all, there are other prison records that contradict the statement of him completing treatment, stating that he wasn't at a medical facility before heading off to Hazleton, but locked up in solitary confinement. Secondly, as far as his alleged health improvements are concerned, that too is contradicted. According to jailhouse letters from Bolger to a California woman he corresponded with, he expressed his will to live despite deteriorating health, including eight heart attacks. And before his transfer, while still at Coleman, he was stricken with severe chest pains when a prison nurse conducted a series of tests and determined he needed to see an outside heart doctor. And finally, above all that, this explanation completely fails to take into account the most significant factor of them all, the fact that his return to the general population should have been first and foremost predicated on whether or not he was going to get beaten to death in his first few minutes in general population, 
regardless of his health. As a factor, his health really only becomes relevant if the threat to his life, as a well-known rat, had first been negated. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not championing this scuzzbucket. We know this dude was a bad mofo, but rather for, I don't know, argutainment's sake. A lot of people are curious as to what went wrong or perhaps right here. Could it have been as banal and bureaucratic as just incompetence? Cameron Lindsay, a retired warden at three federal facilities, called the case a shocking failure on multiple levels. He stated that there's absolutely no way Bolger should have been sent to Hazleton, and he sure as heck should never have been released to the compound at Hazleton. It's difficult to imagine how and why so many people dropped the ball on this thing. This next person's statement is far less confused. Vito Meraviglia, a retired federal prison special investigative agent who spent 27 years monitoring high-risk inmates and evaluating security threats in arriving prisoners, said that, unfortunately, it looked like they gave him the death sentence. He added that, for people to say, I didn't know he'd get hurt there, is an outright lie. Either they were extremely negligent or just a complete idiot. And there had to be 10 idiots because a lot of people signed off on that. The Federal Bureau of Prisons, presented with a detailed list of questions, declined comment. In a statement released, they simply said that, for safety and security reasons, we don't discuss specific conditions of confinement or whether an inmate has had a disciplinary history. We can't comment further due to an ongoing investigation. Moving inmates between prisons is a common practice in the federal system. The transfers are done for multiple reasons and are signed off on by a centralized unit in Texas and the two regional offices involved in the move. Moving an inmate like Whitey Bolger, however, would very much not be business as usual. According to current and former prison staffers, the transfer process would have been started by the Coleman II warden. The request, after passing through layers of federal prison bureaucracy and ultimately getting the approval from the regional offices, would have generated paperwork that would eventually cross the desk of the Hazleton warden. Bolger's dark past was not covered up on his intake screening form. It described him as a Boston mobster involved in numerous murders and acts of violence, high-profile case. His severity level was marked off as greatest. The Hazleton warden and his staff were ultimately responsible, unless, of course, ordered by a higher authority, for deciding whether or not Bolger would be released to their general population. So how about the explanation that it was all designed, purposefully orchestrated, so that Bolger would be murdered? The first thing to know is that, according to McKinnon, the guy that was on lookout while the other two thugs beat Whitey to a pulp, everybody in the prison knew Whitey Bolger was coming. McKinnon made sure to emphasize the commonness of this information stressing that he heard it from just another inmate. It wasn't some secret information that other people didn't know about. In a phone call made from McKinnon to his mother just five hours before Bolger's arrival at Hazleton, recorded by prison officials, he told his mother about it, saying, you should know the name Whitey Bolger, to which she replied with, oh Jesus, stay away from him, please. To which McKinnon replied with, uh, I can't. 
which may have been due to the fact that his cellmate was Freddy Gius, and not helping him was not an option. Officials have yet to explain how the inmates knew of Bulger's arrival. At 5 a.m. on the day of Bulger's murder, Gius and McKinnon were seen on surveillance meeting with De Colagero in their cell. According to an assistant U.S. attorney, Gius and De Colagero readily admitted to another inmate that they were the killers. De Colagero apparently told him that Bulger was a snitch and that as soon as they saw him come into the unit, they planned to kill him. According to an anonymous law enforcement source that spoke to MassLive.com, admission and proof of guilt is not an issue at all, quite the opposite, as the killing of a figure as derided as Whitey Bulger is a badge of honor and rewarded in criminal circles. When referring to Gius, the source said, He's a rich man now. He'll run any prison he's in. Undeniable foreknowledge, undeniable planning, undeniable motive. But even if we were to accept that this must have been done by design, that only spawns the next question. Whose design? That criminal elements were involved is not in question. The question is whether the intention to eliminate Bolger stemmed from even higher up. Were the criminal elements just tools to carry out, knowingly or not, someone else's wish? The hands to do someone else's dirty work so theirs would remain clean? On the two-year anniversary of his murder, Whitey Bulger's family filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Justice, U.S. Bureau of Prisons, and U.S. Marshals Service that alleges there was a conspiracy by the government to intentionally harm him, seeking $200 million in damages. The family's attorneys, Hank Brennan and David Schoen, left no room for interpretation in a letter to the Department of Justice. They wrote, To be clear, we do not believe that the transfer to FCI Hazleton and placement in the general population was simply dangerous, negligent, reckless, and irresponsible. We believe it was also intentional and part of a conspiracy among BOP, DOJ employees, and others to intentionally cause Mr. Bulger's serious injuries and death. The family also put out a statement saying that they believe that James Bolger was deliberately placed in harm's way. Aww. There is simply no other explanation for the transfer of someone in his condition and inmate status to be placed in the general population of one of the country's most violent federal penitentiaries. The suit was dismissed. Uh, put a smile on my face. In January of 2022 but not due to some judgment that it lacked in validity or credibility, but because, as per a U.S. district judge, federal courts were barred by Congress from weighing in on prison housing decisions that resulted in injuries or death. So the claim itself was never actually examined. It was thrown out before it could be examined. The attorney, Hank Brennan, has said that he believes the Justice Department deliberately waited to file the charges until after the civil suit had been tossed, so that they couldn't be made to turn over additional evidence that could aid the family's case. He said that they knew that a civil lawsuit could not proceed unless we knew who signed the transfer order, who directed and who approved putting him in a place 
where everybody knew he would be murdered, and adding that they just don't want this information to go to the public, and they don't want to prosecute their own, and they never will. A spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of Virginia rejected Brennan's claims, stating that the civil case brought by Bolger's family had no impact upon the criminal investigation or the timing of the indictment. One very interesting and equally as perplexing detail remains, however. According to an intake screening form that Bolger filled out himself, when it came to the question of whether there were any reasons he should be kept out of general population, he answered no. No one knew better than Bolger that he was marked for death. Was he under the evidently false impression that he would be provided some kind of protection? Was it just his flawed perception, or was there something we don't know about? Was he just losing it by this point? Dementia, Alzheimer's, or just cognitive decline? Unaware of what he was signing? Or was this still part of the act, the same act that made him deny his entire life that he was ever a rat, his health gone, his freedom gone, his legs gone, but his pride still strong as ever? Or perhaps merely indifference, or even acceptance, towards death from this sick, wheelchair-bound, universally despised by the criminal world he dedicated his life to, the only world he ever knew, back-to-back lifer 89-year-old. Coleman's former warden has said that he thought Bolger wanted to die, adding how he believed that whatever issues he had, he had come to peace with them. The warden's view seems to go back to the incident of Bolger's chest pains while examined, and the nurse's suggestion that he go see a heart doctor. Bolger didn't just refuse, he threatened her. I know people. I still have connections back home. And that's what set in motion his doomed transfer to Hazleton. A meager and lacking funeral was held with just family members, including his brother and former Massachusetts State Senate President William, and the twin sister of his former girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, were in attendance. But outside that small gathering, there came about one of the greatest, grandest processions of attendance, just not in mourning. Stephen Davis, whose sister Deborah was reportedly killed by Bolger in 1981, stated, He died the way I hoped he always was going to die. It's just sad that it took so long, said Carmen Ortiz, the former U.S. attorney for Massachusetts who oversaw Bolger's prosecution. Tommy Donahue, whose father Michael was shot dead by Bolger in 1982 in a hail of bullets intended for someone else, said, If I could, I would put money in the guy's canteen, whoever killed him. It's going to bring me a lot of pleasure knowing that for eternity, he's going to get a pitchfork in the ass from the devil himself. Another former U.S. attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rawlins, was quoted as saying, In the truest of ironies, Bolger's family has experienced the excruciating pain and trauma their relative inflicted on far too many. Though perhaps no statement in reaction to Whitey Bolger's violent death managed to sum up the overall sentiment, then... Another former U.S. attorney for Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling, 
We received word this morning about the death of James Whitey Bulger. Our thoughts are with his victims and their families. Oof, that stings. Talk about kicking a dead horse. Well, thanks very much for tuning in to the Homicide, Inc. True Crime Podcast. I'd like to invite you again to rate this podcast, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Be a pal, click the stars, and leave a review if you'd like to. This helps tremendously in getting our podcast into more ears. Thank you very much. Also, make sure you subscribe so you'll get notifications as soon as a new episode is released. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive Homicide Inc. podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, you can always buy us a coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website, where you can hear all the podcasts and some other cool stuff. Well, thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao for now.